0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish
1: professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Andres Swakoyni, who is the president and CEO of the Jewish Funders Network. Previous to this role, he served as the CEO of Federation CJA in Montreal from 2009 to 2011, where he spearheaded a brand new strategy and developed innovative community programs. Before joining the Federation, Andres worked for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee in Paris as the regional director for Northeast Europe. I've asked him to join us on the program today because the Jewish Funders Network has really emerged as a leader in the field of philanthropy within the Jewish community and has created a community for funders where there was not one previously. And I think that the work of the organization is very relevant to everyone who works in the Jewish community, especially in learning more about how it operates, why it operates and its impact. So welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to be at the program.
1: Wonderful. So we'll go ahead and get started just hearing a little bit about your journey and how you got into this position with Jewish Funders Network.
0: So my journey starts in Buenos Aires, Argentina. As some people say, I have an accent that you can hear. That's from down south. It's relevant actually to my community trajectory because I grew up in Argentina, as I said, during the times of the military government. It was very rough times. But at the same time, there were times in which the Jewish community became a refuge for Jews to live in a completely different atmosphere than the one that was prevalent in the outside. My whole idea of the importance of community, of the role that community can play as a support network, as a place of belonging and warmth and connection, got really formed in those early years. You know, grew up in a very poor family, so we were supported by the community in very meaningful ways. My day school tuition was a scholarship, and my first summer camp was on a scholarship, and, and so on and so forth. So that all sort of shaped the way I see the critical importance of community for the development of each individual. It also formed my understanding of Judaism. I came out of a community that was very Jewish, very Zionistic, very committed to Judaism, but very secular at the same time. That taught me that, you know, you don't have to have a religious practice in order to have a strong Jewish identity and a strong Jewish belonging. Having said that, I did get close to conservative Judaism because the conservative movement in Argentina in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up was very active in the field of human rights and fighting the government and doing all that kind of stuff. Actually, there was an American rabbi called Marshall Meyer who was really the founder of the conservative movement down there. And he was probably the most outspoken critic of the government. He had a whole movement you know, in terms of human rights and freedom and democracy and all that. For me, Judaism is linked to all these things, right? to the community feeling on the one hand, on the other hand, to this commitment to social justice and human rights, which is more than just having this idea of tikkun olam that we have, you mm-hmm. know, that is very popular.
1: That's one of your organization's values. <laughs> no,
0: correct, which it is. But I'm saying it goes beyond that. It goes with, yeah. a, with a personal commitment to embody those values in the Jewish community. So inspired by Marshall, I actually studied to be a rabbi. At the same time, I studied business. So I had always this dual career of being a community activist and also working in the corporate sector. At some point in time, I went to Israel. I came back. I started working in the corporate world. And then one day I got a call from a particular person at JDC who asked me to do something more meaningful with my life. And they offered me to go to Europe where the Jewish communities were sort of emerging out of the long night of communism. I mean, the combined, I would say, nightmare of Nazism and communism, they went from one to the other. And it was supposed to be a short experience before I would go back to my corporate career. And it ended up being more than 12 years of working in Europe, doing that kind of work, also working in a lot of pan-European programs. It was the times of the building of the European Union and we wanted to build also the Jewish European Union. So it was really interesting because it was again about building community and creating coalitions and the like. And then I got headhunted to go to Montreal. I had never dreamed of living in Canada and or running a federation. But I think that what the community wanted and what I had to offer was a completely different perspective to the way federations worked and were supposed to work.
1: Had you known about the federation system before? Yeah, of
0: course, of course. The JDC works very closely with Mm -hmm. the federation system. I had never imagined that myself to be working there. It was a very interesting ride. What we managed to do through a great partnership with the lay leadership and with the community at large to really challenge some of the basic assumptions upon which a federation is based. And now, actually, many of the things we were doing there now are like mainstream, but back then were really daring. And then, you know, I got a call from somebody that says, you know, what? have you thought of the Jewish Funders Network? And I said, listen, this is about being a self support group for victims of wealth. I don't think that's what I want to do. Right. And he says, well, that's what it could be, but it could be much more than that. And that's the challenge, is to make it way more than that, to make the network a vector of change in the Jewish world and a tool for transforming realities, not just, you know, philanthropists patting themselves in the back, but really tackling together the big issues that are facing the Jewish world, Israel, America, etc.
1: So I'd love to actually go back to your time at the Federation a little bit. And maybe touch a little bit upon innovation and change and what that process was like for you to bring that to seemingly an established organization, this, you know, network of federations and how you did it.
0: To answer that question, I think we need to go a step back. What is important to realize is that the Jewish world of today is basically running on films on three dimensions. One is a dimension of ideology and meaning. Basically, the ideologies that provide meaning to Jews were basically all created in the 19th century. Reformed Judaism, conservative Judaism, Chabad, Zionism, all these ideologies mm-hmm. were actually a specific response to a historical set of realities in the early 19th century. Now, Reformed Judaism was created in 1810. Chabad in 1814. And we haven't really changed those ideologies. Or to phrase it differently, those ideologies were responses to specific circumstances that are not the circumstances that are there today. And we haven't invented what's the equivalent of reform or orthodoxy or Zionism for Mm -hmm. the 21st century. we were still running on the films of ideological movements that we think they are eternal, but they're not. They are historical manifestations of Judaism. They take some core values, but they are historical products. So that's one issue. The second issue is that communities today are challenged by the emergence of a society that is centered on the individual. We take that for granted in the 21st century, but it's a relatively new thing. The center of society was the collective was the community, was the political party, the trade union, the club, whatever you call it. Right. But it was a collective body around which society was organized. What's happened in the twenty first century, I mean it starts as happening in the eighties, in the nineties, there's an explosion of individualism. The challenge that not only those groups, but the very notion of belonging to a group. Jews always choose either this movement or this ideology or that ideology or this synagogue or that synagogue. We always a choice. But what changes now is that you build your own choices. You build your own identity. Mm-hmm. Now, that is huge because what it does is that it threatens or it challenges pillars upon which the Jewish community rests, right? Which is... Absolutely. Which is a collective.
1: A lot of the themes we've kind of been exploring through a lot of these conversations, specifically with synagogues, federations.
0: Exactly. And I mean, the whole notion of membership, of belonging to something, I don't belong to anything. As a conservative rabbi, I don't consider myself anymore a conservative Jew.
1: I belong to Hulu. I belong to Netflix, right? I'm members of those. Right.
0: Exactly, exactly. And actually, my own identity is a patchwork, is a collage of different things, right? It's like the list of songs in my iPod. It's completely eclectic. The notion is that i got to build it myself. And the idea that the whole objective of society as a whole is... In French, they call it épanouism, the personal development of the individuality of each person. Like all that is like obvious, but it's not. It's a very, very new phenomenon. And that challenges the essence of the changes that we're facing, the challenges that we're facing in the Jewish community. Our organizations, our federations, our synagogues are all based on the collective. The human being is a social animal. We'll always want to be in groups, but we will want to be in very different groups than the ones we were. In other words, we will want places of belonging that first and foremost respect our individuality and give us the individual capacity of choosing our own menu. Jews can decide to be countercultural and keep insisting on the collective, but that's not what Jews do. In other words, what Jews do is they thrive on this encounter between the zeitgeist and the volgeist, which is what Hegel called, you know, this intersection between the spirit of the time and the spirit of a people. Judaism always did that in its history. It basically confronted whatever trend was there and adopted it and adapted it. So probably that's what we need to do now. And the third problem that we face is that we live in a crisis of organizational structures in the Jewish community because our organizational structures are basically designed following the paradigm of the 20th century manufacturing company. In other words, it's a pyramidal structure, which in turn was modeled after the army, where orders flow from top to bottom, where information is centralized and analyzed in one place, and then sent down to the bottom on a need-to-know basis, where each of the pieces has only one place in the structure, and is extremely different to the way in which the information economy works. In other words, for the manufacturing economy, where you needed to produce widgets or something, the pyramidal structure was extremely efficient and was extremely effective. It was cheap. It gave us a panoply of goods that we could have never dreamed of, but is not particularly good for situations that require high creativity, where information circulates freely, where leadership is not top down, by, but is distributed all over the structure. Now, all this long introduction to say that when you're running a federation today, or for that matter, any Jewish organization, You're sitting at the intersection of these three big problems. The crisis of meaning, the crisis of belonging, and the crisis of structure. Federations feel that conjunction of issues more than anybody else because they carry a glorious tradition that makes change more difficult. But federations are products of the early 20th century. All federations are 100 years old. They were built for a different time for a different concept of community, for a different ideological world. It made absolute sense at the time to have a centralized planning body for the entire community. It doesn't anymore because the context is such high volatility that you need to decentralize planning and creativity and the circulation of knowledge. By the way, also federations have a demographic problem. It's funny that I call it a problem, but it's a demographic problem because people live longer. When you talk today about somebody who doesn't want to belong to something and doesn't want to belong to something for, let's say, 15 minutes, you're asking them to belong to something for 70 years. Right. Because you go into Young Leadership Cabinet or whatever it's called these days when you're 25, and that was all fine when you retired at 60. But now you live relatively healthy lives until you're 90. Who's going to stay put? in one organization for 70 years. It doesn't work like that anymore. So a federation needs to actually enter into a dance with change. It has to understand how society is organized today, how the individual Jews see themselves, how the human condition has changed. It's not just Jews. I mean, Jews are early adopters, but this happens to everybody.
1: Did you come into your federation job with all this wonderful knowledge that you have? (laughs) Or is this a product of your experience there?
0: I think I've been refining it. I think some things I intuitively understood and some things I learned by bumping my head against the wall. (laughs) And some things, frankly, some of the changes, I think I would have gone much further. The thing is that, you know, people are rightfully attached to a model and, and that has value too. And the federation in Montreal specifically is a highly performing federation. It probably has the highest per capita campaign in North America. So, you know, it's kind of hard to create urgency for change when you're really a great federation and you're so successful. But on the other hand, that gives you the cushion to go and try new things. Mm -hmm. And I think that much of my thought about some of the traditional organizations, I've been reflecting a lot since I left the Federation of trying to systematize that thinking about why is it so difficult to reform that system, right? There's something that I remembered from when I was in France, at the same time that France was updating its phone system to digital, the African Republic of Ghana was doing the same. Now, France, to update its system, needed to put huge investment because it had a system that had last been updated in 1913. Mm. But it kind of worked. Like people talked on the phone and you have wires and you have installations and you have centrals and you have people working and you have phones in people's home and they had something called the Minitel, which was sort of a precursor of the internet that people still use. So you had all those things that... You had to do something with. You wouldn't jettison all that. Even if you would, it would be even expensive to dismantle all that. So at the same time, Ghana had to do his phone network. They just went straight to 5G, most advanced digital phone system in the world, because they had nothing. That makes me think of those legacy organizations, right? Like you have things that work. You know, people get services from federations and people go to Israel and money gets raised and all that. So you never get to ask the question of, if it didn't exist, how would I create it? Or in other words, I would have to create something like the Federation without any of the baggage I had, without the 1913 analog copper wiring of the phones. How would I build it? And I think that that's a very interesting exercise that I suggest to every Federation director Every Every organization,
1: Every organization
0: about this. Yeah, it's great. And when I say, how would you build it? I mean, how would you build it in terms of leadership flow, information flow? Would it be a central organization or would it be a collection of ad hoc networks and coalitions that are fluid, that sort of get formed and reformed? What would be the metaphor that you will use? to build your organization. The traditional metaphor for an organization, as I said before, is the army. You, know, you have one commander, you're a specialist on one thing, everybody moves together. The metaphor for a 21st century organization is the brain. Individual neurons get realigned all the time and they form networks all the time. What's critical is the relationship between the neurons and how they get reconfigured all the time. The most important thing is not the person that has the highest role, is the person with the most connections. That's how it works in the brain. You know, the most important part of the brain, I mean, all the neurons are basically similar in hierarchy. You don't have general neurons and captain neurons and right. soldiers, foot soldiers. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the same. What makes a difference is the capacity they have to connect with others. All the inflammatory illnesses of the brain... Have to do with you know, preventing cells from connecting with one another, you know, creating barriers in the synapses. I think that this is a great new metaphor that we should be using. And I think it's a great metaphor because we don't fully understand the brain.
1: Right. And,
0: <laughs> Even better. And it's better because we don't fully understand the human being of the 21st century. Like right. one of the things I said at the Federation, but I was also work with different Jewish organizations and families, and nobody lived. In the early 21st century before so the notion that we're going to know the answers is tempting but it's false nobody knows the answers nobody has experience in this type of society so it's new for everybody and that means that we have to be open to a lot of trial and error to a lot of experimentation and our tolerance for risk has to be different. Our culture of risk-taking has to be very different. Because we're not going to get it right all the time. Actually, we're not going to go it right most of the time. Right. People think that one day somebody came up with a great idea of doing the federation. It wasn't like that. It was a process. Yeah. People were trying things until they hit on a model that worked. We have to do the same, but we don't always give ourselves the liberty to do that.
1: Wonderful. Well, let's shift focus a little bit and talk about the organization that you lead. So the Jewish Funders Network has about 1,800 international members. You do a yearly conference, you do smaller programs and events throughout the year, you choose funding topics and areas of giving focus every year. If you can give us a brief history of how this network came to be and its current purpose within the climate of its funding work.
0: First of all let's start by saying that the Jewish funders network has for a mission to expand the breadth and the impact of Jewish philanthropy. To say bluntly we want more philanthropic dollars and better philanthropic dollars. In other words philanthropy that is more impactful, more connected, more professional, uh, more strategic, etc. The Jewish funders network is a product of the times, of all those trends that I was talking about before. One of the things that the centering of society around the individual also resulted in the growth of independent philanthropy. The number of foundations in the United States quadrupled in the last 30 years, the number of donor advice funds tripled in just 10 years, and is growing at a pace of 12% every year.
1: With the creation of giving circles and philanthropy and a lot of other...
0: Correct. But that's a response to the trend. That The trend, what it goes to is to a much more individualized way of giving. And the good news about that is that in this context of independent philanthropy, you have enormous creativity and you have a very big entrepreneurial drive that not always exists in the big organizations. And that is understandable because when I'm running a federation, I have a fiduciary responsibility to thousands of donors. I can't gamble away campaign money in a program that can be extremely risky. But a philanthropist can because, you know, it doesn't have those constraints. A program like Birthright would have never come out of the federation table. And rightfully so, because there would have been something unethical about the Federation investing money in sending rich kids to Israel with the hope that that will cause a revolution in the Jewish world. It's too risky. But when philanthropists do it, well, all of a sudden they can, they absorb the risk and they can prove the concept for later to make it safe for the Federation to actually adopt it.
1: Right. So it's not the money that goes to the staff person who dreams up the risk and spends money. It's the actual person with the money dreaming up and partnering and creating. Correct.
0: So that explosion of independent philanthropy provided the community with a lot of new creative ideas. Probably the most transformative programs in the last 20 years were what came out of the mind of independent philanthropists. Only later on engaging with the rest of the community. Birthright Fright is the best example. BJ uh, Library, Moshe House, One Table, you name it. That growth of independent philanthropy is a good thing. The problem with that is that, is, as, as the Talmud says, you know, the, it's great thing, it's bad thing, meaning you tend to be too individualistic and you tend to focus on your innovative idea and not connect with others. That's where we come into the picture. In other words, we want to create a network in which people can share, can learn from one another, can get a vision of the totality without needing to sacrifice their individual identity. So we try to sort of be the bridge between the individual funder and the collective good. Right. A bridge that doesn't demand a full life belonging, or it's a fluid network. So we try to bring people together by their area of interest, by their specific demographic. The total understanding is that those belongings are going to be episodic and they're going to be ad hoc and they're going to be multiple. Within JFN, a person can be in a peer network of disabilities and in a convening about Jewish pluralism in Israel. We recognize and we work based on the idea that people have multiple interests and people are that patchwork I was talking about before.
1: You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. We are very excited to welcome our next podcast partner, the Jewish Theological Seminary, where Mark S. Young, our episode number two guest, works as their managing director of the Leadership Commons in the Davidson School. They also offer a variety of professional graduate programs, including the Davidson School of Jewish Education's New Disabilities Inclusion Concentration, which is part of their MA in Jewish Education degree. Over the next few episodes, you will hear more about the programs JTS offers. And to learn more on your own, visit www.jtsa.edu admissions. That's www.jtsa.edu slash admissions. Before returning to my conversation with Andres, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Nanette Friedman, who discusses with me what it's like to run her own consulting firm and her experience with different types of organizations and leaders. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. The conversation I have a lot with executive directors, development directors, you know, CEOs where they say to me, you know, I could have told them the same thing, but they need to hear it from you as the outsider expert. You know, that is absolutely true. And also being the third eye, you know, being able to kind of see the different perspectives and hold them and facilitate. I mean, a lot of my job is facilitating difficult conversations mm-hmm. at the board level, at the staff level, at the board and the staff together, you know, of right. thinking about where real decisions have to be made and people are Emotional. And, you know, how do you kind of separate the emotion from the end goal and the strategy and what's best for the organization? And that is something that it really does benefit having an outsider come in. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Nanette in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Andres. Part of something that you alluded to earlier, talking about the trends that you've seen in your career of the funding models. We see this trend, as you just mentioned, it's not the collective getting together and pooling their money and funding something for the community, right? It's not anymore groups who will coming together and saying, we want a synagogue or a religious school and we're going to all pool our money to fund this thing or a federation or something geographically. It's a much more individualistic and seemingly top-down model. So we're kind of flipping this model from collective creating to individuals creating what they maybe think the collective might want or seeing something that might be successful. I'd love for you to explore a little bit the pluses and minuses of the, you know, you have 1800 members, I think, giving, you know, billion dollars annually. You know, that's a very small pool of wealthy people saying, I like this, or I like that. And clearly, that's something you're trying to do in your network and bring those people together. But no longer is it a feeling that our institutions are for community, for a collective, that it is these very valued few who are making the decisions of what happens and what doesn't happen, what continues, what doesn't continue. It's a very interesting dynamic that we're seeing a shift from that collective to the individual where the power really lies.
0: You can break that into a number of questions, actually. The first one, and this is something we work with a lot, the first one is that being a strategic and a driven philanthropy doesn't mean being whimsical. It means acting out of a deep understanding of the field you're trying to influence. You know, And I think that there are positive changes in that. I wouldn't be truthful if I said that. All philanthropy is impactful and and strategic and thoughtful. (laughs) Right. There is a lot of ego-driven philanthropy. There is a lot of whimsical philanthropy. But I think that the field as a whole is moving to a better direction, to a direction of really understanding the big picture. And I think the difference is that I don't think that people are going to pull their money into a fund that then will decide to tackle an issue. That's not going to happen. But what is going to happen is that people are going to realize how their contribution affects the collective picture. In other words, people are going to start asking and are starting to ask themselves, okay, I'm funding this or that program, but am I really solving the problem? So I'm sending 200 kids to camp, but I'm really solving the problem of, I don't know, teen Jewish engagement. Right. Right. When you start asking that question, so then by definition, you're going to start looking at a bigger picture. You're going to say, who else is doing work on that field and what are they learning and what are they doing and how what I'm doing is impacting what they are doing. So it gives you a completely different picture of the work you're doing. Imagine, you know, these rivers in the desert that when it rains, you have these rivulets, of water, like you have these little streams. Now, when you look at from the air, it looks like one river, right? Mm. But that's the type of view we want folks to have, not to be focusing on their little rivulet, but to really see the entire field. Now right. they continue doing their little rivulet, but maybe they'll say, "Oh, you know what? Maybe I'm going to join you with these other rivulet, and we're going to do something together." Maybe. I need to divert it a little bit because that part is completely dry and I Mm -hmm. have to. So that's the type of work that we need to do more and more in philanthropy today. That's one part of it. The other part that you mentioned is a conversation that is taboo, but needs to happen, which is a conversation about money and power and the abuses thereof. It is mostly for philanthropists an issue of self-regulation. Because at the core of the problem is that there's no actual feedback mechanism for philanthropy. So Let's say you have a business. You have a built-in feedback mechanism, which is you either make money or you go bust.
1: Yeah, people coming in Uh, in the door or not, right?
0: Yeah. And you have a nonprofit is the same. You either people come through the door. Or you raise money or you don't. I mean, it's very, okay, the nuances, right? It's not immediate. But at the end of the day, there is a bottom line. When you're a philanthropist, you make a bad grant. You do a whimsical investment. What happens? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Moreover, somebody's going to probably go and tell you that you're great. They're going to throw a gala in your runner. You know, I always tell funders, listen, the moment you started with your independent foundation, you're going to lose weight. You're going to look great. Your jokes are going to be funny. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like That's probably the last day anybody told you the truth. It's a real problem because the lack of feedback convinces you of your own infallibility. And sometimes you have funders setting policy, really, on issues that they don't nothing about. I mean, the case of campus programs, I'm not going to get into trouble for this, but it has to be said. It's a great example of that. You know, funders in their 70s that haven't set foot on a campus in 50 years, Mm -hmm. deciding what's the best approach to reach out millennials.
1: feels like all of our organizations, right? Same thing with Federation. You have the $5,000, $6,000 minimum gift of board members. And so you have the seats around the tables making the decisions are not the people that are a democratic, you know, representation of the people the organization is working for or serving.
0: Right, but in the federation, at least, you have some deliberative process. Right. In the foundation, you don't. I shouldn't say you don't. You have to build it yourself. Right. It's not built in. So part of the process of professionalizing philanthropy implies a deep reflection about this phenomenon of money and power. You know, what does it mean to be a big funder? How are you going to limit your own power so as to allow you know, for honest feedback? What mechanisms do you have in place so that people can tell you if you're not doing the right thing? How open are you to different points of view? How willing are you to be outvoted mm-hmm. by the community you're trying to serve? How willing are you to receive and reward challenging feedback, right? All that is vital. And I think that the good philanthropists, the ones that we really like, admire, and hail as models, they all do this. In some shape or form, they solicit feedback from the field. They are open to be challenged, et cetera.
1: Are those part of the conversations we should be having when somebody comes and says, I want to give you $100,000, I really love what you're doing to kind of have that conversation of saying, "Love, we'd love to have your money, but we also need your involvement. And this has to be a two-way street conversation and partnership if you're going to be involved at in that level of funding our work.
0: The problem is very few people go and tell you Here's a hundred thousand dollars because I love what you do. That's not what they say. They say I like what you do. I would like you to do this or that program.
1: All right. And yeah, I want and you to do it differently. Yeah. And here's hundred
0: thousand dollars that you can use, but only in these or that conditions. Right. And because you need the money as a nonprofit, and you're not going to let a donor walk out the door, so you say yes, when in fact what you should say is. You know, let's have a conversation about the program you're gonna have because that's not what's gonna work. Mm-hmm. And we working in this field, we know what works and what doesn't. We want your input, but and then you're right, let's make this a two-way street. Right. I mean, and we don't need money for a new program, we need money to support our core operations. Now, all that stuff is part of conversations that the funders don't always initiate, and the nonprofits don't have the guts to put on the table.
1: We'll do a new professional development offering for you. You offer how to talk to major donors. (laughs) So you can talk to our Jewish professionals about how to have those conversations because that's not easy.
0: It's not easy. But in my experience, it's a tragedy of the commons in a way because Mm -hmm. everybody does it. Everybody takes whatever money with whatever condition. And then what they do is they lie to the donors and it's a vicious circle. So I think that there is value And the donors will welcome a more honest relation with nonprofits. These people are smart. They are successful in business. They know when people are bullshitting them.
1: Well, and that's part of the partnership thing too, right? Like, I don't just want your money. Like, you obviously have something else to offer us than just Correct. Correct.
0: The most successful fundraising model is the one that actually engages the funder. The only reliable predictor of philanthropic involvement is how engaged people are. Now the more engaged people are, the more they're gonna give. It's not the wealthier they are, it's not the older they are. All those are myths. It's
1: not how many letters they receive in their inbox or emails or
0: computers come with a delete button.
1: Right. <laughs> and a recycling so, bin
0: right next to and the recycle bin right of the mailbox. So it's about meaningful engagement. That goes back to how I started, right? I mean, you want to feel valued and recognized as an individual for your individual contribution. You want to be involved hands-on. You don't just want to be a wallet. You don't want to be a tool of the organization. You want the organization to be a vehicle for your passion and your mission and your drive, which sounds like semantics, but it's not. It's a very deep change in the concept of how philanthropy works. Like in the past, you were a nonprofit, you wanted to do the good in the world, and the donors were a tool. You would go, you solicit them, you sold them, and you were successful, they gave you money. Now it's the other way around. Now the donors want to do things, and they're going to shop around for what is the best vehicle for them to do good in the world. A new organization can or cannot be that vehicle, and The other thing that is related to that is that there's no more loyalty. In the past, it was a thing to do, like everybody would give to the Federation Mm -hmm. and your parents would give and you would give. And there was a loyalty built in the system.
1: In a previous conversation with Rabbi Dan Jetson, he liked it to attack As you talk about the turn of the century, like that was a very popular new thing talking about taxes and you paid your taxes. And so the idea of paying your taxes, quote unquote, to the Jewish community seemed very natural and understood in that model of society that, oh, yeah, of course, you give your taxes to the government, you give your taxes to your community. And, you know, that just made sense. But people don't like taxes anymore.
0: Right. People don't like taxes. Nobody pays taxes voluntarily. And also there was something else that it was that people were willing to outsource their philanthropic activism to somebody else. They would say, the Federation knows where the needs are. They're doing more or less the right thing. They're also supporting Israel, which me as an individual, is hard for me to do. It's not anymore the case. People don't want to outsource anything. Like, we don't want to outsource anything. Like, I'm always trying to bring it outside the Jewish community so that we understand. You don't want to outsource, for example, your travel planning anymore. We don't have travel agents. You go into kayak and you book it yourself and you wouldn't trust the travel agent anymore because you would second guess them. You would (laughs) go, if somebody tells
1: you, I found you. What kind of cut are you getting for this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. So the same is happening in philanthropy. We're all about cutting the middleman, right? And the notion is then how do we recreate a sense of loyalty, not to the specific organization, but to the causes. Right? So you don't want to mediate anything anymore. In other words, you want to interact directly with the content, with the material, with the options, and you want to choose. In the case of Israel, I'm going to a different issue completely here, but I think it's part of how the landscape has changed. The issue of Israel and philanthropy in Israel is a major change in Jewish philanthropy as a whole. Today, over 50% of the philanthropy that goes to Israel what I spent in Israel comes from local sources. Up to 9 billion shekels of the 16 billion shekels that go to philanthropy every year are from local sources. There's been also an explosion of philanthropy in Israel with new sources of wealth, a new class of business leaders and high tech wealth and what have you that is upending all the traditional views of. Jewish philanthropy in relation to Israel. In the Jewish Funders Network, around 27% of our members are from Israel. So the whole notion of you're going to give money to, quote unquote, Israel doesn't exist anymore. What you're going to seek to do is to really partner with local philanthropists to tackle specific societal problems in Israel. Arab Israelis or disabilities or education or economic security, whatever it is, you're going to do it in a very different way. And that's also a massive change.
1: I would love to continue to go so much more deep into the relationship, especially with funding between the American and Israeli communities. But for the interest of time, I'd love to just hear, based on kind of the conversation that we've already had, what advice you can give our listeners, Jewish professionals, lay leaders, in all types of organizations, when they think about their funding, or they think about your network, or they think about what might be ahead for them as a Jewish professional. The
0: first advice for any Jewish professional is to be very proud of what you're doing. That's not obvious. We live in a time when the Jewish communal profession is underrated, is undervalued. In terms of salaries, you know, Jewish professionals have competitive salaries, in the non-profit sector at least. But the whole notion of there is a specific expertise that you bring to the table is being threatened. The lack of mediation between the user and the content is also affecting the Jewish professionals, meaning I don't need you. As it were, if I have the philanthropies, I don't need the philanthropists.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: So that's the first thing. And if professionals are not going to value their job and put it in the right place, nobody will. So it has to start by them. I saw in the list of podcasts that you talked to Gali, and she has a lot of things to say about that. And people are realizing that that's important.
1: Do You do have a few, you know, foundations and we've talked a lot about this on this program that are seeing that and deciding you, know, you know, put the money in those programs and training professionals and making sure that they've got the skills they need.
0: If you force me to choose one specific piece of advice I would give is this, is to be extremely comfortable with ambiguity and vagueness because the world we live in is a world that will not have easy answers. And I know that that's a little countercultural now because part of the politics in this country and in the world is actually the search for those easy answers. The post-truth society is in fact a fear of complexity. The reality is very messy and very complex and I don't fully understand it so I'd rather believe in some crazy conspiracy that at least explains it in very simple terms. And I think that to be successful in the 21st century you will need to be very comfortable with ambiguity, with
1: failing. Risk, you talked a lot about taking those.
0: But Everybody will agree with that. What it breaks down is that then people don't really have a system for taking risks and for failing in an intelligent way. You know what I always say is like fail fast and fail cheap. And I think that that's something we have to have as professionals, those of us in leadership positions, we have to create systems that allow us and our employees and our whole organization to try new things, to fail in a way that is not so costly, to compartmentalize, to operate, to always have a basement team trying something new, etc. cetera.
1: Mm-hmm. We're putting space in your budget for innovation, for trying new things. So it's already known that this is what we're doing is taking right. you know, a
0: risk. And by the way, that's an area in which you can partner with philanthropists. If you're running mm-hmm. an and you have a crazy idea, you can go and pitch it to a funder and have a conversation with him about, listen, this is a crazy idea. It would be irresponsible for me to do this from my operational budget because, you know, I have urgent needs to serve, but would you like to help me do this and try it out? All these are opportunities to really get involved and get funders in creative ways. The other thing I would say is that for those trying to work with funders, talking about values instead of valuables, meaning what is the overall value that a person can bring to the table? I think it's very important, especially with young funders. Different ways in which you can get involved besides writing a check. And don't get me wrong, we need the check, but we also need cognitive diversity that different funders can bring into the table. That's the other piece of advice I would give. You need to build a system of cognitive diversity because many of the big shocks of the early 21st century were basically failures of imagination. You know, 9-11, for example, was not a technological feat. And the reason why we didn't catch it wasn't because we didn't have assets or we didn't have surveillance. It was because we didn't have imagination. We didn't imagine that somebody would do that. Right. You know, the reason many of them couldn't foresee the Trump phenomenon is kind of similar. We didn't have the imagination to think about it. I mean, the signs were on the wall, but we didn't see it coming because we didn't have cognitive diversity in our organizations. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage each and every one of us, starting with myself, to be very vigilant. To avoid echo chambers, I mean, when you live in an echo chamber, is all no or nothing proposition. You win or you lose.
1: Well, even echo chamber within our own Jewish community, right? That's, that's what I'm to talk talking about. each other as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I'm
0: talking about. Like, ask the question, "What if?" all the time. Ask the question of what changes in the landscape can put me out of business. You know, unknowns, unknowns. You know that are out there. That I think is the most important skill. People think that imagination is really the work of a lone creative genius. That's not how it works. Imagination is an iterative process that is networked by nature. You know, it's not some genius on a acid trip, you know, imagining some weird thing. It's people talking to each other and people with different diverse interests and diverse outlooks talking to each other. One of the things that people don't know, the scientific revolution in the 18th century did not happen in the laboratories. It happened in coffee shops. You know, John Priestley was sitting in London in a coffee shop with Benjamin Franklin and they were talking about gases and electricity and stuff and then John Priestley would go home and would discover oxygen and Franklin would go and put out the lightning rod. You know, but it was a process of people sitting together multidisciplinarily, and talking about the most diverse issues and sparking sort of serendipitous discoveries that in a way come out of that interaction. An idea is a network. An idea in your brain is a network of neurons that all of a sudden organize themselves in a particular manner and create somewhere in your frontal lobe here or there they sort of fire in a specific way. And that generated an idea. It's the same in the Jewish community. That's what your network does. And that's what the network tries to do. The network tries to create spaces for what I call engineers and I mean, and I think that's true for N, but it's also true for any organization. The notion of the general in the field is the notion of a catalyst. You know, an enzyme in your body is a catalyst. It makes that a chemical process that would take a very long time to happen. The enzymes make it happen very fast. Protein will break down in your gut eventually, but it may take them three years. With a specific digestive enzyme, it takes half an hour. And it's a much richer process because the proteins can recombine in different ways and form different things. That's the role of a leader today. To be a catalyst, and to identify what processes can happen and then add value to those processes make them faster, and make them more effective, more focused, etc.
1: Awesome. Lots of great advice in there. So my last question for you, I mean, I can only assume that your job takes you, you know, all over the world, having a very busy schedule. I can only assume you speak in... Lots of different places and lots of different contexts. I mean, you deal with a lot of clients that are probably pretty demanding and people that want your attention, people who want to talk to you on podcasts. So how do you keep your life balanced?
0: That's a great question. And I'm not always successful, to be honest, but I try. And I think that one of the first things that is important is there is a balance between realizing that the work you do is important, but you're not a brain surgeon, meaning and a friend of mine who works in a completely different field. When I tell him I have an emergency, he goes, what is an emergency for you? Like, <laughs> Somebody is assimilating now and you have to intervene before mm-hmm. the priest throws water and baptizes them? Like that's, <laughs> that's an emergency? <laughs> so to put things in perspective is always good. I'm not at the expense of taking your work seriously. The second thing is to realize that having a space for yourself makes you more effective. Reading and exercising and taking care of yourself not only like, makes you better at your work, but it's necessary. I read probably 200 pages a day and I will always do it. I will do it in the subway, in the commute. And it's important because it sort of enriches me personally, but it's also important to do your job better. But you have to be very disciplined about safeguarding those spaces for you, for your family, realizing that, you know, the Jewish people survive four thousand years without you. He's gonna survive for half an hour more if you help your kid do their homework. Right. You kinda have to take that on and be disciplined about it. There's no limit of urgencies in the world and you can be hooked into a Twitter feed twenty-four hours a day. Mm-hmm. But is it really going to add value to your work? You have to be really smart about it. You have to also create mechanisms that let you do things in less time. You know, how many hours we spent sending emails back and forth or I just pick up the phone and I was holding it in two minutes.
1: Right, <laughs> right. Right, I, so. I actually just took my first vacation in a very long time where for a whole week, I actually did not look at a single email. And it was very difficult to not, do that, but very rewarding.
0: I mean, you need that distance. You need that mm-hmm. distance.
1: And the world didn't fall apart. <laughs> the world didn't fall apart. And everything is fine.
0: But the truth is that it's easier said than done because, listen, I tell people working at JFN, you have to take care of your personal life and you have to leave space for your family and all that. But then I do send them emails at midnight. And even though they know, I don't expect an immediate reply. There is a subtle message there that, hey, I'm working at midnight, so maybe you should too.
1: Top tap, right?
0: And the truth is that you shouldn't. I'm working at midnight because that's when I prefer to work because I concentrate better when everybody went to sleep. There are some cultural norms in Jewish organizations that are not conducive to people safeguarding their own space when you work on that as a community too.
1: Any last thoughts from our conversation that you wanted to pick back up on or reiterate in any way?
0: I would just say that we live in very scary times, frankly, and I don't know when this is going to air, but we're doing it in the aftermath of Charlottesville and, and Nazis marching in the streets of America. So the feeling is that we live in very scary times. At the same time, I would want folks to think of how exciting our times are, too. If you lived in Europe in the 14th century, your world would be consumed by the Black Death and Mm -hmm. the religion wars and the Mongols advancing up to Hungary and all that stuff. You wouldn't even notice that in some little shop in Germany, a guy called Johann Gutenberg was inventing the printing press and changing the world forever. Sometimes the world seems incredibly messy and scary and dangerous, but there are a lot of exciting things happening that are momentous. The human condition is changing. The technological landscape is completely different. The communities are changing, and it's a very exciting time. And we have a unique privilege to be those shaping the Jewish response to those changes. So I would just try to end with an optimistic message of saying, yes, some things in our world suck. And from whatever you look, there seems to be really big issues. But never in human history, we as individuals had as much freedom, as as much power as we have today. And that's huge. And that's something we should leverage and harness and try to make it into an engine of of change and creating the Jewish community of the
1: future. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Andres. I really appreciate your time. Big pleasure. At the beginning of our conversation, Andres talked about his work at the Federation CJA in Montreal. For those who listened to our previous guest, Laura Fish came on board as our chief strategy and planning officer just after Andres left. Part of her job in that organization is to bring about change, presumably building on Andres' work as he described it in this interview. It is very interesting to now hear the perspective of the organization's previous leadership and make the connection between the lessons he learned in that position and the work Laura is now doing. Andres sees our current Jewish communal structure at the end of its usefulness. As denominations of Judaism were once created to fill a need at a specific time, we will now see what comes next for our community as it is shaped around the times of today. I wanted to lift up one idea Andre suggested. If your organization is going through a change or feels stuck, try the activity of having your board members, staff, or executive committee create the organization you run from scratch as if it had never existed before. What would that organization look like? What would it be doing differently? And what bright spots would be lifted up? See what might come out of that conversation. It might give you a whole new perspective. Just a quick announcement. It's Who You Know is now accepting suggestions for our 2018 series. If you have a great leader in your community, or if you know somebody in the field that you'd like to know more about, please send your suggestions to us through our website at www.itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com. Thank you again to our newest podcast partner, the Jewish Theological Seminary, which offers a variety of professional graduate programs, including the Davidson School of Jewish Education's new Disabilities Inclusion Concentration, which is part of their MA education degree. To learn more, visit www.jtsa.edu slash admissions. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations and more on our website. It's who you know, the podcast.com. This is your host Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.
0: Like this episode? have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at it's who you know, the or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.